You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that you would search our hearts, that it would um, point out where our sin is, that we might repent, that this would strengthen and unify your people even more, and that lost sinners might be saved for having gathered and heard your word today. We pray for your anointing on the hearing and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And as I've said many times over, the Ten Commandments are the constitution of reality. This is the way the world works. This is the natural law. If you want to live naturally, Well, walk in accordance with the Ten Commandments. This is natural living at its best. And the Ten Commandments are a guide for life, and they are your counselors. They will speak to you along the way, and they'll teach you. As you walk through the paths of life, they will help you and direct you. And as you encounter the darkness of this world and the lies and deceptions, deception that await you, The Ten Commandments will help you to decode the lies and the traps that the enemy has laid for you. They help you with all of this. And they are wonderful helpers, but they are a terrible savior. They can't save you. They can only help you through life, and they they can only damn you for your sins. The Ten Commandments are inflexible. These principles of justice are universal, and they cannot change. They can't flex. They can't bend. They can't be shaped as you might like to shape them. They're inflexible. And so while they provide for you the laws of nature and the constitution of reality and are a guide for life, they show you that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness of sin, and they point you to the Savior who's Jesus Christ. Only he can save you. The Ten Commandments can't. So is the Ten Commandments needle around in your heart and they point out your sin? What you need to do is you need to repent of your sin and you need to go to Christ immediately and fly to him and you will find forgiveness. Forgiveness will abound and does abound in Christ. He has plenty of grace to go around if you will but turn to him. So there's an exhortation to you. 
as the Ten Commandments and as you're exposed to them, as they, if you come under conviction of sin, go to Jesus, our great Savior. Now, last week I started the Ninth Commandment, and I explained what it is, I explained why it's sin, and I explained how it applies. I kind of gave you a whole bunch of application. I mean, there was a shotgun f- shell that was full of application on the Ninth Commandment last week, and it went blast. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm zeroing in on, I think, some specific application of the Tenth Commandment, or the Ninth Commandment. I want to spend one more week on this. And if the commandment is to not bear false witness, which it is, we just read it, Ninth Commandment is you shall not bear false witness, then, you guessed it, we should protect our neighbor's good reputation. That's what we're going to talk about this week. How to pursue truth and justice in a world that's full of sin while protecting our neighbor's good reputation. If a commandment prohibits evil, it demands the opposite good. So if a commandment prohibits us from bearing false witness, the commandment demands that we protect our neighbor's good reputation. And if the commandment demands that we protect our neighbor's good reputation, the commandment also demands that if our neighbor has earned a bad reputation, we uphold that too. So in a true and just society, you're able to call good, good, and evil, evil. You're able to call honest, decent people, honest and decent people, and you're able to call scoundrels, scoundrels, and you should, and that's a righteous thing to do. That's what the commandment has. And we'll talk about all of this as we explore this and as this commandment unfolds before us. But how do you live in a world in which bad people exist? Bad things happen by the hands of people. And then uphold this commandment to not bear false witness. Protect your neighbor's good reputation. You you know, you you actually see people do bad things. Do bad things to you. And you see them do it. Well, how do you uphold the, ni- the ninth commandment when you see those bad things that are done? Or, or how do you uphold the ninth commandment when you hear about bad things? Somebody does a bad thing and then it's told to you. Or maybe somebody didn't do a bad thing, but yet someone invented a bad thing they did or perceived a bad thing that they did and it's told to you. How do you deal with that in light of the ninth commandment in this messy world that we live in? Bad people in this world get away with bad deeds. How do we deal with that as it pertains to the ninth commandment? So you got some real scoundrels in this world, sneaky people who get away with a lot of bad things. Well, how do we deal with that when we are suspicious of their dirty deeds? And how do we deal with that in light of the ninth commandment? Bad people in this world that we live in will use truth to achieve bad purposes. This happens a lot too. It happened to our our Lord Jesus. Judas' sin wasn't that he lied. Judas' sin is that he told the truth about Christ, at least where he was and who he is. He told the guards where he was. He took the guards to Christ and he pointed out Christ to them. He used the truth, and by using the truth, became a traitor. So, is there ever a time when you shouldn't tell the truth in this dark and dirty world in which we live? How do I uphold the ninth commandment in light of all of these circumstances in which we find ourselves? How do I protect my my neighbor's good reputation and live in this dark world? These are all questions that I hope to answer this morning. And I have divided the sermon with three questions that should cover all of that. My points are three questions that should cover all of the ones that I just asked. What if I witness a sin? That's the first question. Second question, what if I hear an allegation of sin? What am I supposed to do? 
And third question, is it ever wrong to tell the truth? If so, when? And I'll submit to you that, yes, it is wrong to tell the truth sometimes. All of this in light of don't bear false witness against your neighbor and the opposite of that, protect your neighbor's good reputation. How do I live in this world that I find myself? So I'm going to wade through this slowly with the hopes of what what I'm trying to do as I wade through this is how do we achieve justice? Justice is correcting, making wrongs right. How do we achieve justice? Well, also upholding the ninth commandment, not bear false witness, protect my neighbor's good reputation. How do we do those things together? And thankfully, God's not left us in the dark. He's laid out all of this for us in Scripture, as we shall soon see. So let me ask the first question that I want to ask this morning is, what if I witness sin? How do I deal with that in light of the first commandment? What if I have knowledge of sin because I witnessed it? Let me just put this out there before I get into this any further. In serious instances of criminal activity, you need to report sin to the governing authorities. When that sin is criminal and it's serious, so murder, the the destruction of property, sexual assault. These types of sins need to be reported to the proper authorities. And it's their job then to apply the appropriate principles in those instances. And God has put the authorities in place to investigate, to prosecute, to convict, and to punish such people who do these things. And so there's been a handful, a small handful of times throughout the course of my ministry where I have received knowledge of somebody who has committed such a crime. So, and in all the instances where I've had to deal with it and I've had to report it to the authorities, it's been a small handful of times someone has communicated to me and it's a substantiated claim that there's been an instance of sexual assault. And when that has come to my attention, I've had to turn that over to the appropriate authorities, namely the police, and let them use their God-given powers to investigate, prosecute, and bring it to the court so that decisions can be made. And if there is guilt, it can be proven. And so if law enforcement is doing their job and the courts are doing their job, what they're actually going to do is they're going to uphold the principles that I'm bringing forward as I answer this question. And we can be thankful that we live in a country where our legal system, at least foundationally, we've received it based on a lot of good Christian principles. The assumption of innocence and weighing evidence and so on. And so... All of what I'm about to offer to you as I answer this question, what if I witness sin, is applicable to all spheres. So it's applicable, as I just mentioned, it's applicable to the courts and to police investigation. It's applicable to instances of sin in churches, instances of sin in your workplace, and in your family. And sometimes the sin is such that only the family needs to be involved. Sometimes the sin is such that the family and the church need to be involved, and sometimes the sin is such that the family and the church and the governing authorities need to be involved. And this is all determined by which sphere of authority the particular sin falls under. But the process and the way to go about dealing with allegations and weighing evidence applies to every single sphere, whoever's in authority in that sphere. So if there's instances within your family that need to be addressed, well, there's a process that you can have as a family to achieve order and justice and right living in your home and peace. And if there's an allegation or an instance of sin in the church, then there's a process that should be followed. And if you're working in a workplace where 
You know, if it's a healthy workplace, there's a process that should be followed. And certainly in a healthy society, there's a process that should be followed. And so all of these principles that I'm going to lay out to you apply to each sphere of life. Every sphere. And so the idea is, is that it's actually, if you apply these in your home, you will teach your children by your example to apply them properly wherever they end up and create peace where there otherwise would be confusion. And so everyone has some application here, I think, today. Or if you're operating somewhere in the civil realm and you have legal authority, the courts or law enforcement or prosecution or defense lawyers, all of these principles should be informing your conduct, your professional conduct. So whether you're dealing with family or church or work or the courts, the Bible lays out due process. And one of the first things that you should note is we look at the Bible and how to deal with these things is Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where it tells us that allegations of sin, in order to receive a conviction, in order for them to be proven true, must be substantiated and corroborated by more than one witness for them to hold up. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That principle right there, corroborated evidence by two or three witnesses is all over the Bible. You see it again come up in the New Testament for example, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, where it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We see it come up when it, as it pertains to the death penalty and how to bring about a, a sentence of capital punishment in a criminal trial. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So this is all over the Bible. And as we will find out, this actually applies to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. They couldn't get him on corroborated evidence. But you can prove his resurrection with corroborated evidence. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the very least, with others. So this applies to Jesus Christ. They couldn't convict him of his death sentence on corroborated evidence. But you can prove his resurrection on corroborated evidence. And so those who are responsible for adjudicating in these matters and find themselves in places of authority, in workplaces, in families, in churches, in society, they should be taking these principles and considering them. And the first one I just laid out is in order to prove guilt, there must be a corrobor corroborated evidence. And sometimes, sometimes when there's two conflicting parties, there's corroborated evidence on both sides. And this is where it gets very dicey. In which case, the person who has been entrusted with adjudicating the matter with solving the matter must be very, very careful and very, very diligent in it. So in Deuteronomy, verse 19, verse 16, it goes on and it says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. And look at what it says. The judge shall inquire diligently. When you have conflicting testimonies, corroborated evidence perhaps on both sides. And it's now the person who's adjudicating the matter, whenever, whatever the matter is, to very carefully comb through what's going on before he or she starts drawing conclusions on the matter. Lots of questions need to be asked. I found this throughout the course of my ministry that often when there's a conflict, so for example, let's say there's a marriage conflict and there's a couple in the church that are having a marriage conflict. And, you know, the, one of the, the wife or the husband comes up to me and speaks to me privately about the matter. 
and kind of lays out his or her perspective on what's going on in the marriage and presents to me, paints before me some serious injustice that's happened to him or her. At that point, I've learned it's so hard. It, it takes a real sober mind. It takes a real sober mind not to react emotionally when you only hear one side of the story. Especially when you know people. A real sober mind. And then Proverbs 18, verse 17 says in that line, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And that's happened to me so many times. Where somebody comes to me to present me with some issues and you, you, could, you, you just feel your mind is trying to control the emotions because you sense the injustice. And then you say, got to control the emotions, got to control the emotions, can't react to this. And then you go and you go ask the other side of the story and you think, oh man, I'm so glad I controlled the emotions. And you only have to mess up once or twice there to not want to do it again. But this is why the scriptures say it's very important for those if you're trying to pursue truth and you're trying to uphold the ninth commandment by not bearing witness against your neighbor, it's very important to comb through what's going on very closely. And there's a very high standard in the Bible for proving a charge, for proving that somebody is indeed guilty. And, that, and what that does is it, it protects all of us from libel from slander, is innocence in the process is assumed and evidence is weighed. Everyone is protected in that. And then as this process is, plays out, so, so, so you're involved in this, you're a parent, you're a manager at, at work, or you're in church leadership, um, or whatever, you're a teacher in a classroom, and there's an issue that you've got to solve. And you're like, okay, we've got to weigh the evidence and we've got to establish the evidence and we've got to weigh all this through and figure out and look at the inconsistencies, look where the story breaks down, look at what's corroborating. And this is your responsibility. You have to feel the weight of this. There's a few things that you have to do in the process that the Bible lays out that are very clear. And I'll just lay those out for you right now as I talked about the importance of assuming innocence. And one of the things that you have to do in the process is that you have to, as I just indicated, remove yourself emotionally from the situation, which is not always easy. Those involved must not take things personally, but instead be ruled by principles and not emotions. So I'll give you what John Trapp said. This is really good. Causes must be heard, not people. Now you say, whoa, don't we care about people? Well, just a second. John Trapp, and this is so wise, and he's, he's building on a biblical principle here. He said we should be more concerned about the cause or the issue or the truth, whatever you want to call it, than the people involved. He said, really? Yes. Why? Because when you're more concerned by the truth or the principle or the cause than you are about the people, you're showing concern for the people because you're protecting the people from false allegations. When you put the truth before the people, you actually protect the people. Is essentially what he's saying. And so it's very easy to get caught up emotionally in things and, and that creates prejudice and it clouds judgment. So Leviticus 19 verse 15 says something similar. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You see how that goes? When you come to a matter, it could be, there's two things that might happen. There's many things that could prejudice your judgment. One is, you could come to a matter and you could say, well, that's a great person. It's a very powerful person I'm dealing with, so I'm afraid, so I'm going to side with him or her. Or you could come to the matter and you could say, that's a very poor people. That, that's a very weak person. And so I have sympathy for him or her, empathy. And so I'm going to side with him or her. Then see how, how, how all of a sudden judgment is skewed and prejudice is brought into the situation. And, and so you have to bring this to make this to bear on your children. You'll find 
you find with your children, if you're trying to raise the, your children this way and teach them this, you'll find that there's a, there's a spectrum of personalities within children. And some kids, when it comes to a conflict where the children are involved, they, they can be very belignorant. You might have seen this in some of your kids. And some even belignorantly demanding justice. And then you go to another kid, come from the same couple, and instead of being belignorantly demanding justice, this kid can resort not to belignorance, but to crying very quickly, demanding sympathy. And so your temptation may be to side with the one. I don't want to produce a reaction with the belignorant one. That might be your temptation. Or your temptation would be, oh, I feel really sorry for the crying one. And so if you cater to the crying one, then the crying one learns that crying is how you achieve your ends. And if you cater to the belignorant one, then the belignorant one learns that being belignorant is how you achieve your ends. But what you should be teaching is to not achieve their ends, but to achieve truth. So to remove yourself emotionally from a situation and to deal with the cause is actually to love the people involved in the situation. And so you have to be careful about this with your children. You deal with this. You need to fear God and love the truth. So Deuteronomy 1 verse 17 says, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. For the judgment is God's in the case. And then Moses goes on and says, If the case is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me. But the idea is you're not intimidated by people. You fear God and you love the truth. And you just let the consequences of the truth play out. This is something that you could be concerned about in a society where power is very important. And we live in a world where there's all kinds of skewed views of justice that are being introduced into our system right now. Social justice ideas, right? So that justice, as opposed to being achieved, is to be skewed towards those who are perceived to be oppressed. So someone is part of an an oppressed group. We haven't even proven whether they're an oppressed group. But someone's part of an oppressed group. And so we skew justice towards them because there's some type of emotional sympathy that them being part of this oppressed group elicits. But the Bible says, no, you should not fear what people think of you. You should not fear the masses. You should not fear the great. You should not fear the small. You just have to pursue the truth in the matter. You chase the truth wherever it leads you. And I think when you're pursuing justice and you're pursuing truth, you need to speak when you possess evidence, someone's name's being tarnished, someone's being accused, you should be speaking when you possess evidence. Leviticus 5 verse 1, if anyone sins and then he hears a public adjuration to testify and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. It's your responsibility when there's a matter to defend someone's character or, or, or defend a, an accusation. The accuser, when you possess vital evidence, Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, of course, tells us in these types of process, we should remove hypocrisy from ourselves. You know, you've got a plank in your own eye, take it out, and then deal with your neighbor's sin. That's, that should be obvious. And then Leviticus 19, verse 17, speaks about the importance of reasoning frankly in these matters. 19, verse 17 you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur judgment. And this is why, and, and, and again, you, you have to admire the wisdom of our political and legal system as it was founded. There's, there's corruptions right now. that There's always going to be corruptions in the system, but at its foundational level, there's so much wisdom because our legal system is by nature adversarial. If there's allegations that are brought... There's a prosecuting lawyer and there's a defense lawyer. They're bringing it to court to stand before a judge or a jury. And what are they doing? They're reasoning frankly with each other. Just like the scripture says. This this leads to a frank discussion. And, And what does our political system look like? It's similar, right? You send people to the House of Commons or to the Senate. And and what happens? You hope. 
that there's frank discussion on the floor of those chambers in order to achieve truth. That's the objective. Is, it's, is all of these positions of power, there, it, there's, an, there's, an, there's something adversarial that's built into it. And, then, and these, so these aren't principles that have been pulled out of midair. These are principles that are God's principles and, and they need to be applied in the pursuit of truth. In all realms of life, to reason frankly, with each other. In, in that line, Proverbs 27 verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. That means that you're better to openly and frankly confront someone on an issue than you are to secretly love them. Because it's the open communication, the frank communication, the frank rebuke that communicates the love in the heart. Because your attempt is to achieve truth and to bring truth to light. And so, but we live in a very mamby-pamby, effeminate society where people don't like this. But there was a more honorable generation a few generations ago where this would have been a given. You, you speak what is true. You say what you mean and you mean what you say. And you're clear about it. And that's virtuous. Because that's how you're, an, and that's how you're arriving at the truth. You're not obfuscating. You're not flexing around it. You're just dealing with it and putting it out there. And you take all of these ingredients that I just mentioned, so you, you don't take things personally, you just deal with the issues, you fear God and love truth, you speak when you possess evidence, you remove hypocrisy, you reason frankly, you take all of these ingredients and you submit to the appropriate authorities, and they are responsible with weighing the evidence and, and discerning specifically what's going on, whether they're parents, whether it's church authorities, whether it's office authorities, whether it's, it's society, the legal authorities law enforcement and the judiciary, that's how you establish, not innocence, guilt. Innocence is assumed. That's how you establish guilt. When the appropriate authorities follow due process and prove guilt, that's how it's proven. And these principles, although they're not in many cases, should be second nature to Christians. They should be second nature. Because this is the wisdom of God in the Bible. But so often we're not studying your Bibles or we're not hearing these things taught. And so we take on, we, we just kind of imbibe the way the world operates. As opposed to the way God has designed us to operate naturally. And these principles should be second nature to us. So much so that, you know, when the Roman Empire began to collapse... And the people of the, the citizens of Rome, the Roman Empire, started to lose faith in the Roman judiciary. And the people had a matter that, of, of public dispute that they needed someone to settle for them. Do you know where they went? They went to the churches. Because the churches, and particularly the clergy, understood these universal principles of justice. And felt the weight of the fear of God to judiciously sort through matters. And come to the proper conclusions. These should be second nature for Christians. But it, and then Christians should be applying them to their family. They should be applying them to their relationships. They should be applying them to churches, to their work environments, and to certainly, if you work operating within the legal sphere, to the courts. So some will, some will hear this. You're going to hear me saying all this, everything I just said. And what you're going to say is you're going to say, well... I recognize that there's some principles at play here, but it is possible that someone will then get away with an offense, isn't it? Now, this opens that possibility. And I've, you, you have, you, as you have children, you, you realize this. If you want to apply these principles in your home, you realize this because, you know, you got one kid that says this kid did one thing, and you got this kid that says this kid did one thing, and there's no real evidence other than their verbal testimony. And you say, well, do you have any? No, 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 no. I can't really decide on the matter. I can separate you till things cool down, but I can't decide on the matter unless there's, you know, evidence. And if you want to teach your kids these principles, you should try and apply them in your home and they learn by example. And so it's possible that guilty people will get away with things. 
Very possible. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, there's a few things that you need to keep in mind as you think about that. One, it's better to have the guilty assumed innocent than the innocent assumed guilty. It's better. That's one thing you've got to keep in mind. You don't want to live in a society where the innocent are always assumed guilty. Because your number could be next. But beyond that, the guilty always get caught eventually. Because that's the way God designed the world. Might not happen in your time frame, but they always get caught. So much so that providence typically directs events so that the guilty end up exposing themselves. Because people who operate in sin are foolish. They do dumb things. And they get themselves caught. The Bible talks about they fall into their own nets. And their own traps. I, I can tell you, I don't know how many times... In the course of my ministry, I've been suspicious that something has been going on, and I, but I have no evidence. It's just kind of a few circumstantial things here that I, that I have, and it's, but it's not real hard evidence, and so you can't really say anything. But you're suspicious that there's some nefarious activity going on so many times. And what I do, you know, I, you, I, oh, I broadcast it to everyone. No, you don't do that. But what I've done is... I don't know how many times I've, been, I've, I've sensed this and there's, you observe a few things and you just quietly pray that God will bring things to light and guess what? All of a sudden he pulls out an ace for you and there it is, the ace is on the table. How many times have I seen that? When truth needs to be exposed in the face of deception, you pray about it and then out of nowhere God puts an ace on the table for you. And so part of assuming that the biblical process is the good process is believing that God will bring forward the evidence that you need when you need it, and he decides when you need it. And then beyond that, let's say, let's say the case happens, and it happens where people get away with crimes, and they're dirty dealers, and they never get caught. Well, those are, first of all, are people that God has nothing but contempt for because he's raising them up to destroy them. And they will get caught because everything will be exposed on judgment day. Non-Christians need justice now. Christians are okay to wait for it because they know that it's going to be dealt with on judgment day. As painful as it is to wait for it sometimes, Christians understand the value of waiting for it because it means we're trusting God with the situation. It doesn't give people an excuse to be derelict in their responsibilities. But it does give those who know that dirty deeds are going on, but they're not being dealt with, and they can't be dealt with because everyone's hands are tied, it, go, it does give them an amount of peace to know that God in his time will providentially deal with them. So that's a long first point. The next few will be a little shorter. And I just ask, what if I witness sin? How do you deal with it? Next thing I want to ask is, what if I hear allegations of sin? Again, how do I honor the ninth commandment if I hear allegations of sin, but yet I want to pursue truth and justice, which are noble? How do I deal with that if I hear allegations of sin? Proverbs 26, 22 is very insightful because it says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. So there's something about being told negative things about other people that's just delightful. It just, it's something about it that it's, it's like having that really, going back for seconds at dessert. It's delightful, but you might regret it later. And there are sins associated with such allegations. For example, the sin of gossip. The Bible refers to gossips as gossips, and it refers to them as busybodies. And these are people that spread negative news about people in an unproductive way, and it could be lies, it could be truth, but they just like to spread negative news about people. That's gossip. And then there's the sin of slander. And what's the sin of slander? Well, the sin of slander is simply spreading lies. Gossip and slander, they're very closely related. And so what do you do if you encounter these things? Or maybe it's a true allegation that you encounter. What do you do? Well, I just want to say, like, in the life of the church, churches are very vulnerable to this, and gossip and slander are deadly to the very fragile unity of church communities. We've seen this in our church. And the reason that 
gossip and slander are so potent and deadly to churches, one of the reasons is, is because churches are composed of people who are very comfortable with each other. People grow close, they vacation together, there's families that are connected through blood, they eat together, they're in each other's homes, they confess sin together, they pray together, and this makes people very comfortable with each other. And they, they go through life together. And so the more comfortable you get with someone, the more loose you are often with what you say to them because you trust them. And without intentionality, the conversations can quickly to descend to the point where the conversations are about other people. And as the conversations descend and become about other people, they can quickly descend and become about negative aspects about other people, and then gossip comes up and slander comes up. Because that's just where the heart goes. The human propensity is to go to the bad unless you intentionally move to the good. That's your propensity. And so you get comfortable with people that talk can go downhill eventually. And I'll illustrate this. Second church I ever pastored, um, as they're three and a half years, and before I went there, I was warned by multiple people that they're... The church has a history. I mean, you just looked at their records. They had something like 16 pastors in 19 years. So there was some issues. And I was, I was the next sacrifice, right? So, and, and so they, I was explained to me that this church had, in times past, had two big families. And what would happen is someone in one family would get offended by someone in another family, and then they would quickly tell everyone in the one family and now it's a war between this family and that family, and the church would polarize. And you would just sense it. So that's what people told me about it before I went there. And then by the time I was there, the larger family won the turf war, so the smaller family left the church. And so the larger family now was in charge of the church. And I was told that if I ever step on the toes of anyone in that family, I'm toast. Do you think I stepped on their toes? <laughs> it didn't take long. It took a few weeks, months maybe. And there was an issue that came up. Somebody in that family um, was, there were some issues and I had to deal with them. And there was two sisters and they had a bunch of aunts. And, and I found out next Sunday that everything I heard was true. Because I showed up at church and no one wanted to talk to me in that family. And I showed up at church and no one wanted to talk to my wife. And we just refused to play that game. Just try to be friendly and deal with the issues bit by bit, little by little. There's a, it's funny, you know, God always brings the right people into your life. And so there was an older man in the church who, you know, he, he kind of talked me through these things as he saw them come up. Kenny was his name. Kenny listens to all my sermons still, so he's going to hear this comment. Right? I, get a, I get a text message from Kenny every Tuesday commenting on my sermon. And uh, usually it's a nice comment. But he'll appreciate that. But all of that's to say is, is that's, that's what happened in that church. And they just, they ate each other alive. They drive all the good people away. But you see how that goes? You know, people are comfortable with talking to each other, and then they get comfortable with dealing with these things, and... And then it just, it escalates, and then slowly over time, bad behavior is not corrected, and then it spreads, and then you have turf wars. This is, this is why these principles need to be in place, because if you don't deal with allegations properly, that's where things end up. I promise you. And it should be dealt with, this is, is in a, from a parenting aspect, it's not always easy to deal with because the kids come home from school and they got issues or the kids come home from youth group and they got issues and, and it's, or they got issues with each other. And so, but if, if you're consistently kind of at the dinner table saying, you know, let's just not talk about this now, but if you want some help later, you know, we'll help you out. But I, I just don't think this is going to be helpful. And you try to explain the biblical principles. It takes a long time to get there because the children's hearts are just like our hearts. They naturally lend themselves to such discussions. 
But when you possess negative information about somebody, or somebody comes to you with negative information about somebody in your community, that can be deadly if it's not dealt with right. But if there's credible allegations of serious misdoings, things need to end up quickly in the hands of the appropriate people, and then these allegations will be dealt with. But if you're going to make an allegation about somebody, put your name forward and stand by it. Otherwise, anonymous allegations are useless. Can't deal with them. But I, I noted last week that sometimes people have come to me over the course of my ministry and they, I want to say something about so-and-so. And you know, hear about this person in church? I say, whoa, 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 I just, you know, enough of that now. And in and, and rare instances, I've actually said, well, so-and-so's over there. Let's go talk to him and tell him what you want to say. This is how we're going to settle it. We're going to reason frankly with one another. I've also had people come to me and tell me negative things about some people. And I thought about it for a while. And then I've circled back and I said, you know, you probably shouldn't have said that. And people, to their credit, often say, you're right, I shouldn't have. But, but life is better when you don't dirty yourselves while participating in that game. And you simply bring forward issues to the appropriate people when they need to be dealt with as opposed to spreading nonsense and drama. The Bible tells us that in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17, Jesus basically takes this process that was laid out in Old Testament times, and he applies it to church life. You have an issue with someone, you go to them. If they don't listen, you bring someone else. And eventually it works its way out, and it's told to the whole church if they don't listen, and the church becomes the judge on the matter. Proverbs 25, verse 23 says that when someone brings you malicious gossip or slander and wants to suck you into their issues, you give them angry looks. And in some instances, when people continue these, this type of behavior, Proverbs 22, verse 10 tells us that they must be driven out of the community. It says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. And quarreling and abuse will cease. There's been a few times in the history of our church where there's somebody, there's, there's issues, there's issues, there's issues, and you kind of get to the root of it, and you figure out who's the cause of it, you confront them on it, they don't want to change their ways, and so you drive them out of the church, and then all of a sudden, hmm, all the issues are gone. How'd that work? Well, I guess the Bible was true. After all, Titus 3 Verse 10 and 11 says, similarly, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. And so when you receive information, you want to force the issue through the appropriate channels and make sure that the person who's bringing you the information is ready to follow through. Otherwise, you tell them to knock it off and you don't want to hear it. Not interested. If you don't want to follow the appropriate channels, then I can't help you. And it would be beneficial if you not go around flapping your gums anymore. Thomas Watson said, as it pertained to this, the mandatory part of the commandment, speaking of the ninth commandment, implied is that we stand up for others and vindicate them when they are injured by lying lips. He went on to say, a man may wrong another as well by silence is by slander. When he knows him to be wrongfully accused, yet does not speak in his behalf. If you encounter gossip or slander, it's not being dealt with properly. You are complicit in ninth commandment violations if you do not defend the person. The sin of silence. So how do you deal with this stuff? Well, I hope I've given you some good wisdom here. But what about the real scoundrels and allegations against them? Now, part of bearing, not bearing false witness is bearing true witness. And sometimes in life there's real scoundrels. In fact, very often there are real scoundrels. Bearing true witness is declaring that the scoundrels are the scoundrels. So if the processes have been followed, the evidence is clear, 
and you've seen that it's clear, it's now your job to identify the scoundrels. Isaiah 32, verse 5 says, The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. This is talking about the blessing of God on a community. A community, how do you know one of the ways a community is blessed by God? Is when fools are called fools and scoundrels are called scoundrels. Adulterers are called adulterers and liars are called liars. That's when the blessing of God is abiding. There used to be a saying that people used to say, they call a spade a spade. That's a sign of God's blessing. In Isaiah, in the context of chapter 32, he's declaring what an outpouring of the Holy Spirit looks like. And one of the ways that you know the Spirit of God is being outpoured is that fools are not called noble and scoundrels are not called honorable. Fools are called fools, scoundrels are called scoundrels. So that's how you deal with scoundrels. You name them. And that's how you bear true witness. But what if I have reservations about someone, but I just can't put my finger on it? Well, I talked about that before. You pray about it and ask God to bring things to light. I've done that many times, and God's brought things to light one way or another. Show me that, no, I can trust them, or no, I can't. But there's nothing wrong with distancing yourself relationally from someone because you have suspicions that you can't put your finger on on something. Right? Nothing wrong with that. But broadcasting it to others is where the issue, the issue comes up. And it becomes a, a major problem. And so, hopefully I've answered that second question that I wanted to bring to your attention. And the second question that I wanted to bring to your attention was it, what if I hear allegations about someone? Hopefully I've answered it. I, the first question was, what if I witness sin? The second question is, what if I hear allegations? Here's the third question, and it's even a little shorter answer, because I don't think it needs as much attention. And the third question is this, when is it wrong to tell the truth? Well, there are truths that should not be told. Judas shouldn't have told the authorities where Jesus was. There's one truth. Proverbs 17, verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. There's times when you don't repeat a matter. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So the sowing of bad news to the division between friends might indicate that a truth ought not be told, unless it's a very serious issue. Some sins, simply out of love, need to be overlooked because all of us, all of us are sinners. And there are rules that people can break, and it's not really our job to deal with them. So, for example, if you're driving down the the road, and you're with your brother, and your brother doesn't have his seatbelt on, it's not your job to call and uh, file a police report. He's not sinning. Okay? He's not sinning. If, if you're really concerned, you can say, put your seatbelt on. But if he says, no, leave me alone, then just leave him alone. Right? Or your neighbor says, you find out that your neighbor's installing a new bathroom without a building permit. You are a scoundrel if you report him. That's none of your business. That's none of the government's business. Now, if he installs a new bathroom and the sewage is pouring onto your yard, well, then maybe you get the authorities involved then. But there's such a thing as meddling and being a busybody in matters that don't really affect anyone. Right? And then there's Judas betraying our Lord Jesus by telling the truth. And this gets to the whole story of, you know, what do you, what do you do if you're living in Nazi Germany and the Nazis come knocking on your door and ask if you have Jews in your basement? What do you think you do? There's at least, John Frame in his Doctrine of the Christian Church offers 16 passages in the Bible where, ju- where deception is actually justified. 
And typically it involves the preservation of human life. And so the logic goes like this. If I can use lethal force to defend human life, which I can, according to the Bible, then I can use deception to defend human life. In which case, deception is justified. I mean, even, like, think about this. You're, you're playing hockey, and you're taking the puck up the ice, and you just faked a shot, you ninth commandment violator, you. <laughs> one, of the, one of the great things about the ninth commandment is it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. There is such a thing as an enemy. And the issue that I just brought up about the Nazi and the Jew in the basement are, right? Like, you're dealing with neighbors and enemies at that point in time. The, the boundaries have been established. And you're using it to preserve human life. You know, the Hebrew midwives were not totally forthcoming in their report about the children being born to the Hebrews to Pharaoh. And then God blessed them for it. And there's at least 16 passages in the Bible where this is the case. Now, the problem is our sinful tendency will be to hear that and then stretch it. I guarantee it. Once you get comfortable with this, it's, it, it takes a lot of self-governance not to stretch this in order to benefit yourself and to be able to discern in the situation. But hopefully I've helped in my answer. You have to be very careful in this. When is it wrong to tell the truth? There is a time when it is wrong to tell the truth. And you have to be careful there. Question one, I've answered it. What if I witness sin? Question two, I've answered it. What if I hear allegations? Question three, I've answered it. When is it wrong to tell the truth? I want to take this and I want to apply it to a very important situation. And that is the situation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of being a Christian is protecting our brother's good name. And our Lord Jesus deserves to have his name protected. And this includes bearing witness to the fact that he's risen from the dead. Four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their testimonies corroborate. And then you get to 1 Corinthians 15, and it says in verse 3 to verse 8, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared to me. See what Paul's doing? Paul was a Jewish lawyer. He's taking the law and he's applying it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do we know from Matthew? We know from Matthew that there was no corroborating substantial evidence. There was nothing that, was warrant, that warranted his crucifixion. But then we get to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15 and the Apostle Paul lays it out for, there is corroborated substantial evidence that he rose from the dead. Right there. Here to all the apostles... Over 500 brothers, most of them are still alive. You want to talk to them? At this point in time. Then to James, then all the apostles. Then Paul says, and he appeared to me. What's my point? My point is, is if you're going to apply the ninth commandment standard of truth consistently, you have to apply it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and even to his crucifixion, which was a wrongful conviction. And then you have to apply it to his resurrection, and the evidence is there. Part of obeying the ninth commandment is asserting the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's our duties as Christians, to uphold the validity of the message of the gospel. There was a wrongful conviction, so he was crucified, but there's corroborated substantial evidence that he has risen from the dead. And so we stand by that in obedience to the ninth commandment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray for your blessing upon everyone here that we would all be men and women of reasonable judgment and sound and sober minds. 
that you would teach us and you would guide us and you would help us. That our Lord Jesus would be with us and that a love of truth would always be in our hearts and on our lips. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.